I wonder if you wonder if I feel weird. <laughs> well, I don't. <laughs> I am so happy to be here. <laughs> I mean, I used to be a pastor here. It just feels so good to be with my ladies. <laughs> um, I've been meeting with you on and off for 36 years, so that's before some of you were born. I remember those meetings. I wrote books about them. And I want to just say out loud that the privilege really is moving to me because I just think one of the biggest issues in our world is what it means to be male and female. And you have been such a intelligent, articulate, mature, Bible-saturated kind of gathering every time we've met that I have found a, an echo so that I've been taught, I've been refined, I've been helped and encouraged, and I don't think I could have written the things I wrote or preached the things I preached. I was just with the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood last week, all day long, everybody talked about these issues of manhood and womanhood, and I, they asked me to close the day, and there I'm doing it again, and I'm gonna use some of what I said there, here, but all that just to say, I don't feel out of place here, I think this is what pastors should do, uh, and, and so I hope it's okay that I still feel that way about you. And Well, here's another little reason why. Um, you know, we can argue about the appropriate roles of ways to exercise authority in the church, right? And the eldership and teaching and various things. We can argue about that, but here's, here's what I think there really is no argument about. You are, and I'm thinking now, I know a lot of you are single, but I'm thinking now of, of uh, moms. I don't know, maybe half of you, three quarters, I don't know how many of you are moms. But anyway, I, I believe that moms are the most influential people in the world. Therefore, if my life is devoted to spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ, the ripple effect of touching moms in the world is incalculable. Vastly, vastly more influential than men in high office. Presidents are not nearly as influential as moms. Good grief. So... Just, if you just use the word influence, influence, rather than authority, your, your stock goes way up. So here I am speaking to those of you, single or married, who live lives in such a way that draws enormously important attention to God. I'd love to tackle that one from 1 Peter 3, 5, but... That's not my, not my issue this time. We're talking about future grace, and I'm going to pray now and ask for help as we tackle this. Father, what a privilege here to, to stand before some who've been here from the beginning with me. Thinking of Cindy and others and some, like Shar, I wish were here. 
I miss Char, first one she won't be at in all my 36 years of interacting. And so our hearts are full of thankfulness, full of longing, full of good memories, high hopes, and I ask for help right now to be useful. These women bring 10,000 differing needs into this room, and you meet every one for your daughters. You do. You have a grace designed for every single need. So help me to be a channel of that grace now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme is future grace for this conference. And uh, my job is, is uh, as I understand it, kind of give the big picture and then uh, Samantha steps in with saving grace, preaching about it teaching about it, whatever she calls it, and uh, Linda then with sustaining grace. So that's kind of the big picture as I see it. So let me start with an experience that will set the trajectory of where I'm going to go. So I'm going to put a real specific point on it so it doesn't hang in the air with vagueness but gets real concrete. I just completed, day before yesterday, an article for Desiring God, the title of which is cremation, a modest proposal. Now, I don't like cremation. Um, I think the Bible points towards burial, not burning. However, I know people who are solid Christians who don't see it that way. Probably a lot in this church. And Therefore, conflict is possible, likely. So I gave the article to Noel to read yesterday. She read it. I said, feedback before I send it off to EG. And she only flagged, graciously, one sentence about where I had said something about those who disagree and how we can hang together. I'm going to read you my revised two sentences, which you might think still need work. (laughs) I want to give biblical pointers for why burial is preferable to cremation. I say preferable, not commanded, in the hope that a culture created by a church in favor of burying would not condemn or ostracize a person who chose differently. And I encourage those who choose cremation not to equate my disapproval with ostracism. Otherwise, real disagreements aren't possible among friends. End of quote. So, thinking about people who love each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, having differing views on something like that is kind of on my front burner right now, which is affecting what I'm going to say to you and how I'm going to deal with future grace. Here's my question for us. How does future grace help you day in and day out, hour by hour, not just survive 
relational conflicts, but remain a fountain of overflowing, life-giving blessing in relationships of conflict? That's the question I'm asking. Now, before we can ask how it works, how does future grace help you be a fountain? The Bible says the, the lips of the righteous are a fountain of life. That's what I think moms, wives, single women should be. You, you should pray, God, make my mouth a fountain of blessing, a fountain of life, especially in moments of conflict with kids, spouse, work, church, make my mouth a fountain of life. Before we can work it out, which I hope to do before we're done, how that works, we need to talk about the meaning of the terms that I love, future grace, past grace, and so on. So the first thing I'm going to do is try to define for you, so you know what I mean, because that phrase, future grace, not in the Bible. Grace is all over the place, but future grace is my little phrase. What do I mean by it? How is it different from past grace? How do they relate to each other? And in the process, distinguish grace as pardon and grace as power. Okay, so that's where we're going. When I say future grace... I have in mind the powerful, practical, undeserved help of God in every way that you need help, starting now to eternity. That's future grace. The powerful, practical, undeserved helpfulness of God in every way that you need help from now forever. That's future grace, as I mean it. Now, a couple of things I hope are clear in that sentence. The first is, when you hear me say the word future, don't just think, oh, he means like the second coming. He means like heaven. I do. But I mean five seconds from now, will I be able to finish this sermon? Will I have a stroke? And my eyes roll over and I fall over. That could totally happen. I'm 70 years old, for goodness sakes. So now how should I, how should I think? How should I feel about the next five minutes? That's future grace. And frankly, having faith for the next five hours is way a bigger challenge than the next 500 years. So just know, when I say future, I mean starting now, forever. Got that? Future does not mean way, way, way out there. It means five seconds, five minutes, five hours, five days, five weeks, five months, five years, five decades, 5,000 ages of millennia. You will still need grace. We will live on grace forever, starting now. So that's the first clarification, the difference between future and past. Get to past in a minute. Second clarification, I mean mainly when I say future grace, grace as power, mainly not grace as 
pardon mainly. I know they're inseparable because I'm a sinner. And if God is going to come to me and not incinerate me, but help me, he's got to pardon my sin first. Otherwise, I am just deserve judgment. That's all I'm going to get is judgment. So before he's powerful for me, he's got to pardon me. So I know they're inseparable, but I have the feeling that a lot of us, and I don't know where you are on this, when we think grace, we almost immediately think forgiveness, and he treats me better than I deserve, instead of thinking mighty power to solve my problems, mighty power to meet my needs of every kind. We, we may not think of grace that way. I want you to think of grace that way, not just the pardon way. Let me give you two verses for the futureness of grace and the power of grace. So here are the two verses. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So when he says that, it's clearly future, right? It isn't there yet. God is able to make it abound, make it abound to you. So that's future. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what is, what is that verse? That verse says, I'm praying and you're believing that God is going to come to you, make grace abound to you, and the effect of that grace abounding to you is power for work. Power to do the good things God calls you to do. That's the power I mean. Every single day, we have good works appointed for us. All of you. You will not do one of them without grace. Powerful grace. We will sink into selfishness and live for ourselves and never trust God to do anything powerful if we don't have this kind of grace as power, grace as future. Here's another verse. 1 Corinthians 15.10. I love this. Boy, this. I, people ask me endless questions about theology. This verse comes up almost as many times as any other verse. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Wouldn't that be great for all of you just to say that and be, kind, be, be just okay with that, right? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Tall, short, thick, thin, gray, bald, you're not. Whatever. Just, I'm okay. Because I'm, I'm, I just, grace is, is holding me. So that's first, I love this verse. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. People always wonder, you've got a sovereign God. Is there anything for you to do? I said, I do everything. Preaching, waving my arms. <laughs> Nevertheless, it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He does all as the creator enabler. I do all as the actor. So grace, in Paul's mind, is the power to do everything. 
You see somebody working hard by faith. There's somebody living by faith in future grace. So it, I know those of you who are discerning and have been Christians for 30 years are probably saying to yourself, I think he's just talking about standing on the promises I cannot fail. And you're right. Like, oh, this is not new. My preacher 40 years ago said, stand on the promises and live by faith in the promises of God. And I said, if that communicates better than this, go for it. Because that is what I'm saying. The way to see future grace in the Bible is read the promises of the Bible. Future grace is the promises of God enacted. He is watching over his word to perform it. So promises plus God's fulfillment of those promises, that's future grace. And if standing on the promises you cannot fail works for you, sing it. I'm just trying to put some new vocabulary on a very old and glorious truth. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. You know what that means for you, Christian? United to Christ by faith, all of them are yours. You want a simple hermeneutical guideline for how to read the Old Testament? Okay, I'm reading the Psalms, and it says something precious about the future of this righteous person. Can I read that for me? Yes, because of 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Christ inherits all the promises, and you are in Christ, and therefore you inherit all the promises cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, and therefore it's your book. All of them he bought with his blood. Now, a word about past grace. What's the relationship between future grace and past grace? And this gives me an occasion to say a word about the theme verse of the conference, Romans 8.32. If you were to ask me, if you made me tell you one verse in the Bible, if I had to choose one, as my favorite verse, okay? The one I write when little nine-year-old kids come up to me at a conference and say, would you sign my Bible? And I used to not do that, thinking I didn't write this. (laughs) And it feels presumptuous. (laughs) And now I realize that hurts kids. That's not helpful to a nine-year-old kid. He just admires your preaching and he thought he could Sorry, you know. So now I sign him. And I sign him down in the left-hand corner, real small. <laughs> not big, up at the top. And that's the verse I put in every time. Romans 8, 32. I love this verse. So let me talk about it for about five minutes, and you'll see why. Because there isn't anything more important in the Christian life than to understand and own the relationship between the first half of Romans 8.32 and the second half of Romans 8.32. Nothing is more important than that. Is that okay? (laughs) 
What's the verse say? Now, I understand it's a question. How can a question make such a statement? All right, let's read it. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the first half. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Question. Now, a rhetorical question is a question that doesn't have an answer provided because it assumes you can provide the answer, right? Paul expects you to be able to answer this resoundingly because of what he's written in Romans. So what would you answer? I mean, the the question is, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, comma, how? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Do you you think he's saying, tell me some ways that he won't give you all things? How will he not give you all things? Oh, here's five ways he won't give me all things. Come on. Of course not, Piper. That is not what he expects you to respond with. What, What does he expect you to say? How will he not with you, with Christ, give you all things? And you said, you you say, no way he won't. No how he won't. There's no how. He said how, there's no how, right? There's no how that he won't give you all things. Because he didn't spare Christ, he will give you everything you need to do his will and glorify his name. It is fixed. That's, that's the gist of the... So what's the relationship between the two? He didn't spare his own son. Now, don't you hear in the words didn't spare instead of just gave? He didn't spare means this was not easy for God to do. Isn't that what that means? Didn't spare. Didn't spare, but gave. This was an enormous, I dare say, the biggest obstacle God had to overcome to save me and you. The biggest obstacle God had to overcome to save us is the dignity, beauty, preciousness, and belovedness of his son. To put him to torture and shame and nakedness and spitting and beard pulling and mockery and suffering and death. No, not going to do it. He's God. You're not doing that. Except God is out to save you. So he didn't spare his own son, overcame the biggest obstacle, so now it's a piece of cake to give you all things. Isn't that the argument? From the greater to the lesser, there's a Latin name for that, don't worry about it. From the the greater to the lesser. If you can lift a thousand pounds, you can lift ten pounds. That's the argument, right? If he didn't spare his own son, He won't spare any effort to give me everything I need. That's the greatest verse in the Bible. (laughs) If you say, isn't Romans 8.28 better? No. This is Romans 8.28 in the second half plus foundation. (laughs) Romans 8.28 is thrown in in the second half of the verse. You get everything you need. So, the relationship between past grace 
and future grace is that because of past grace at the cross, you get all the grace you need for the future. That's the argument. Future grace, God's work on your behalf is based squarely on the pardon that happened at Calvary. Before I get really practical now and tell you how this works in helping you deal with conflict, there is one more illuminating question. You might ask, if I were you, I'd ask me. You talk about future grace, all God's practical, powerful, undeserved help for every need you have from now to eternity. And you talk about past grace, and especially at the cross, where all your debts were paid and God overcame the biggest obstacle to save you. Why don't you ever talk about present grace? Which I don't, ever. Good question. Now, my answer will sound philosophical and crazy, but give me three minutes And I I do mean, I don't care about the philosophical dimensions of this. I don't care that it sounds crazy because I live this way, all right? And it has worked gloriously to save me from many, many sins. The reason I don't talk about present grace is because I'm not sure the present exists. <laughs> or to be more careful, I can't find it. I can't put my finger on it. And the reason it, it sounds crazy is because we all use the word present to include durations of time with a little bit of past and a little bit of future. So we say, we live in this present era. What do you mean by that? This present era. Well, probably starting 50 years in the back and 20 years into the future. And we're in there. That's the present era. Well, that's a sum of some past and some future making an era called present. I can't put my finger on anything that is this present moment. You walk into the doctor and he says, how you feeling? You say, well, for the present, I feel good. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Probably last two hours and the five minutes I've been in this room. And that's all. That's just a sum of some past, not the future, Just, here I am. So, right now, so that word is a problem. (laughs) Because it's, it's, there's no now. Except the way there's present. So, if I say, right now, what's present? Okay, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's find it. It's now. (laughs) Now, that is five seconds gone. What am I going to do with that? What can I do with that? Nothing. It is practically useless for me. (laughs) As soon as I think I've put my finger on it, it's five seconds old. And I'm calling it past 
kindness of God to sustain me while I'm talking. (laughs) What this means is I don't worry ever, and I bet Karen doesn't either, I don't think we worriers ever worry about the present. Ever. (laughs) I want to know what you're going to say about this sermon one half hour from now. That's what I worry about. Or the five seconds out, whether I'm going to lose my place and not be able to find it, or I'm working from an iPad. It could turn off. <laughs> what, what would I do? Well, I brought along the, the document so that <laughs> if, if it turned off, see how anxious I am? I'm covering my bases with paper, not the Holy Spirit. I don't worry about the present. Boom, there it goes. It's gone. It's just... So you just need to know, I, I, didn't, I didn't embrace my love affair with future grace because I was indifferent to God's present reality. I embraced it because as I look at the Bible and as I look at John Piper's needs, all my, all my trust issues are in the future for my kids for my marriage, for my health, for my eternal destiny. Everything that challenges me is yet to happen. And if you say, well, I got some pretty big mess in my background that has a lingering effect on me, the only thing about that that disturbs you is what five seconds from now it's going to do, and five minutes from now it's going to do, and five years it's going to do. It's not the past per se that you're worried about. It's the effect on you for the future that you're bothered about. Because the effect it's had on you. It's, so it all translates into the future. So I wrote my biggest book, biggest book on future grace. Okay, that's enough on definitions and uh, clarifications. If you want to know how I picture the present, I picture the future, um, you can use different images, as a, the future's coming this way as a river. It's coming, like time is flowing, and it, it flows over a waterfall called the present and gathers in a reservoir called the past. And that's future grace coming like this, and I need to trust it. And it gathers in a big reservoir called past grace with the cross as the main expression. And therefore, my gratitude should be growing continually because past grace is growing, right? You're, you're breathing. Nobody in this room is in hell. You could have been if you're not a believer in the last 10 minutes. Grace is pouring over your lives second by second, gathering in the past, filling you with a sense of thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's coming at you from the front. So how does that work for helping you be a fountain of blessing in moments or years of conflict? That's what I want to move toward the end asking. How can you be a continual source of blessing in the relationships of your life through the thick and thin of 
conflict. How does future grace enable you, empower you, help you not to run away when conflict comes? Not to be embittered when conflict comes? Not to be hopeless when conflict comes? Not to be retaliatory? Maybe the hardest one. When conflict comes, but instead, blessing, blessing. Now, if you wonder, why are you, why are you using that old word blessing as the goal? Why do you want us to be fountains of blessing? Three Bible verses, one from Jesus, one from Paul, one from Peter, and you'll recognize all of them, and they all use the word blessing, which is governing how I'm stating the goal for you. It's, it's Peter's, Paul's, and Jesus' goal for you. So, here's the first one, Luke 6, 27. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. It could be in your home, with your kids. Nothing hurts more than to have a kid say things like cursing to his father or mother. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So that's, that's one. Here's the second one. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Here's the third one. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So there you have somebody hating you, abusing you, persecuting you, uh, being evil toward you, reviling you, and you're to come back with blessing, which I think means offer life, offer hope, offer forgiveness, offer grace. You can't make, you can't make the relationship work. It takes two to tango. That's not the issue here. The relationship may end. The kid may never come home. You may get fired and a divorce may happen. You can't you can't stop any of that by yourself. But bless, 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 bless. That's what, that's what I'm, I want to know how to do that. Because that's the kind of person I want to be. And I believe you're a biblical group of women. And therefore, your longing is in that direction too. Now, I want to make sure here that when you hear those words, I mean, you may hear, okay, persecute, revile, uh, evil for evil, um, hate, and you may say, oh, that almost never happens to me. I am thinking of virtually every kind of conflict you have. Because don't you think that if God calls us to respond to the worst kind of persecution with blessing, the same thing would apply to a slight from your spouse, your kid, your colleague, just a slight, just the rolling of the eyes, just some demeaning comment. You say, well, these verses don't apply to that. Oh, excuse me. How could they not? Well, you think you're supposed to love people who are ready to slit your throat, but not the people who slight you and return blessing for that kind of wounding? Yes, we are. So that's my goal. I want you to be women who bless, women who are filled to overflowing with the capacities and the resources not to return evil for evil, but to be a fountain of blessing and life-giving in moments of conflict. I want you to be miracle women. This is not something you can do. 
miracle women. And it might be um, your children, insolent, disobedient, ungrateful, indifferent. It might be frustrations with husband who keeps doing that and or he doesn't ever do that. My expectations have been shattered. It isn't the way I hoped it would be. Or it might be somebody at work who just misrepresents you continually. You can't believe it. That's the real world, right? It's the real world of parenting, the real world of marriage, the real world of work is conflict. Some of it minor and almost insignificant. Some of it very painful and dangerous. So three steps to show you how I work through with more or less success the application of future grace to these kinds of conflicts. Step, three steps. Number one, 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That's amazing. So, your adversaries are sinning against you, your kids are sinning against you, your husband is sinning against you, and love covers it. What does that mean? Covers it. I think it means something like um, love has in it the resources not to coil up in anger or self-pity or sullenness, or hopelessness, or retaliation, but rather to bless. Love is a miracle. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from you. That kind of love is impossible for a human like me and you. So I think covering means stripping all these sins, stripping these sins of their power to cause you to return evil for evil. Stripping them. Just pulls the plug. How in the world? That's step one. That's not the end. That's just making it impossible. That's just to sound no way. How, how in the world could I ever get to the point where people talk to me the way some people talk or the most painful things are happening in my life and you're telling me it is possible to have a disposition inside of me by the power of the Holy Spirit that I might actually have the wherewithal not to be made angry, not to be made bitter, not to be made hopeless, but Bless? Really bless? Not just, I'll make him feel like a jerk by smiling. That's not blessing. That's why the word matters. Step number two. Love gets its power. Love gets its power from faith in future grace. Love gets its power from faith and future grace. Here's the verse where I'm getting that idea. Galatians 5, 6. Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So picture it. None of that old ceremonial stuff counts for anything anymore, but faith which comes to 
active expression through love. So if love covers a multitude of sins and faith expresses itself through love, the root of that power is in faith. Is in faith. Faith is working through love. Step three. And this is the most decisive step. This is where most of us fail, I think. I'm speaking for myself here at least. Instead of, this is describing the failure, then I'll, I'll state step three. The failure is neglecting to put a specific Bible promise in front of me, specific, concrete, relating to this moment in my life, five seconds out or five minutes out or five hours out, wherever the conflict is most painful, uh, a specific promise of God and believe it, believe this promise. Instead, we kind of enter those moments with kind of a vague sense, like, well, I know God is good and I, I, I know I'm forgiven, I'm not feeling it right now and And now I've got to respond like Jesus to this moment. That doesn't work. It's too vague. It's just just too vague. The dynamics of faith are real. They're real. They're, They're concrete. God speaks through this book. Oh, I love this book. This book is the voice of God Almighty. If you've got a promise in here for your next five minutes, the only issue is will you believe it? He'll be there. He will be there fulfilling that promise. And the issue is, can't believe it. Will I believe it? Will it affect my heart in the way I believe it? So step three is to get a clear promise or a paraphrase of a promise or two. Fix it in your mind. Lay hold on it and plead with the Holy Spirit that it seep down in and create hope and joy and freedom that does not need to return evil for evil. You're free. You're free. You're not trying to twist the knife by the way you respond. Now, what sentence, summary promise, would I put out there when I'm facing conflict? I've been working on this sentence for about, I don't know, three or four weeks because I knew I had something to say in Louisville and I was thinking about it in a lot of, in a lot of regards. So I've got a sentence for you. It's, it's long. It's kind of got a bunch of pieces that are hyphenated in it. So whether it will be uh, practical for you I hope it will be, at least the principles of it. And you, you formulate your sentence. So I'm, what I'm saying is I need a Bible sentence, either the very words of Scripture or something that captures Scripture, really clear in front of me. Believe it when I'm entering this crisis moment of, of conflict. Got a phone call to make or some conversation is going to be tough. And you, you want to be a source of blessing, blessing, and not retaliation or cursing or whatever would ruin the relationship. So here's my sentence. You, and I'm talking to every believer, every child of God out there by faith in Jesus, 
you have a blood-bought, absolutely certain, inexpressibly happy, totally undeserved future. And I'll say it again. Oh, if I could believe this. If at every moment in my life, every crisis I face, every, every car that won't start moment, oh, I hate it when cars are broken. <laughs> I just, Satan works through cars. <laughs> and I, I need to believe at that moment this. So here it is. You, you have, you have, and if it helps, the three adjectives are B-A-I-T, bait. I didn't plan that. It's not, doesn't mean anything. I don't think. You might find a meaning, but you have a blood-bought, absolutely certain, inexpressibly happy, totally undeserved future. Now, let me put a verse on each of those and we'll be done. Number one, your future is blood-bought. Romans 8, 32, first half of the verse. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. There it is. Because the second half of the verse is going to be your future, but this is the payment for it. He didn't spare his son but gave him up for us all. Romans 8, 32. Second, your future is absolutely certain. Romans 8, 32, B, second half of the verse. How will he not also graciously give us all things because he bought it with the blood of his son, which is infinitely precious? Therefore, my future is as certain as Jesus is valuable. And he's infinitely valuable. Therefore, my future is absolutely certain. Nothing can pluck me out of his hand. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Not this conflict, not anything. I'm safe. I'm home free. It's as good as done. Absolutely certain. Number three, third point in the, your future is inexpressibly happy. The reason this matters probably more than any of the others, although maybe that shouldn't say that, this is all so important inexpressibly happy, the reason I say this is unusually important to believe this is because Jesus designed it that way precisely to deal with conflict. I'll read you the verse where I get that. This verse for me over the years has been one of the biggest challenges and joys. Challenge because I don't live up to it nearly as often as I should. Matthew 5 11 and 12, blessed are you when others revile you. Okay, just construe that as any negative speech toward you, all right? Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And, and don't, don't let the phrase on my account mean, oh, well, that hardly ever happens to you because the people that are mean to me aren't mean to me because I'm a Christian. No, no, no. The principle is the same. 
The principle is the same. If you're trying to walk in obedience and your boss is misrepresenting you, he doesn't even know you're a Christian yet, maybe. The principle holds. Let me read it again. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward, your future inexpressible happiness is great in heaven. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the way to be happy in the midst of conflict so that you can overflow like a fountain of blessing is to be thrilled with your great reward in heaven. Which is breaking in on you in some measure now. I, I personally think this world is mainly designed by God to be sad. <laughs> Even though the Bible says rejoice always. <laughs> though now if you have been grieved through many various trials. I mean we're, we're Americans. Therefore what I'm saying right now doesn't click quite as well. Grow up in Syria. Grow up in Pakistan as a Christian. I was talking with Farhana the other day about her family in Pakistan. Grow up in India as a Christian, northern India as a Christian. Try to grow up in Japan as a Christian. We, we still, for a while, are surrounded by people who more or less let us be. Most of the world, historically and presently, do not experience life that way. Blessed are you when you're reviled. Rejoice. Rejoice. This is a miracle that I want as much as I want anything because I know if I could respond to God's promises this way, rejoice, you have great reward coming. Great future grace, this great reward coming at you. If, you could, if I could be overwhelmed with happiness in that, I could be so much more useful to Noel, so much a greater blessing to my wife, so much richer and fuller and outgoing to my children. I, could, I would be a better man in every way if I could be more happy in my reward. I hate it when people say, oh, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Crazy thought. Crazy thought. Jesus would look at that person and say, what? <laughs> I'm telling you how to be thrilled in the moment of being killed. You think that's not relevant for this moment? Or just being disappointed? We're not nearly heavenly minded enough. And I just mean happy in it. Not thinking about it and trying to figure out whatever is eschatological stuff. I just mean this is going to be off the charts glorious when I don't sin anymore and I don't ache anymore and I don't hurt anybody anymore and I get to see Jesus forever and all my sins not just gone but not even threatening me. So that's the third one. And the fourth and last one is your inexpressibly happy future is totally undeserved. Boy, is this important. Like everyone's important, but 
you might say, and you'd be partly right, well, I can imagine myself in a moment of conflict. Somebody's disappointing me, hurting me, misrepresenting me, criticizing me, whatever. I can, I can imagine being so happy, but that coming across as proud, like a stoic, you know, you can't hurt me. I'm happy in Jesus. <laughs> Try to hurt me, jerk. <laughs> I, I mean, you can at least imagine how happiness might not be, I mean, just considered in the abstract, happiness might not do the trick. That's why this word is added, totally undeserved. So here you are talking to somebody, and, and you think they're bad to talk to you that way. Well, that's true. And guess what? You treated God 10,000 times worse in your unbelief. And every day that you don't trust his promises wholly, you're like a black ball towards him. I cast a vote against you, God. Nothing could be more horrible or outrageous in the universe than to distrust the promises of God. And we do it every day. So you're going to now hold court on somebody who has been mean toward you. When God is holding your life in his hand with grace and forgiving you all day long at the price of the death of his most beloved son. If this one could get a hold of John Piper more deeply, that every breath I take, every moment with you women, is a blood-bought gift I don't deserve. I would be so humble. I would be humble. And humility has resources to be happy in a humble way so that a husband, I'm back at 1 Peter 3 now, a husband watching, an unbelieving husband, say, watching a believing wife, hoping in God, like it says in, in verse 5, and like it says in verse 6, she fears nothing. She fears nothing. And she's hoping in God. This is all I'm saying. And he's going to look at her and say, all the other women I know are fearful. All the other women I know strut with arrogance. My wife is happy and humble and fearless. I've got to figure this out. That's beautiful. So I'm done. Let me sum it up uh, with a sentence or two. My hope for you, women, my exhortation to you is that in all the conflicts of your life that you face, you would be a fountain of outflowing life-giving blessing. That's been my goal. I would love for you to be this in your home and in your neighborhood and in your church and in your work and every place where there are people that you have to navigate. Your mouth, even in the moments of hurtful crisis or conflict, you're going to be an overflowing fountain of blessing. Now, that's humanly impossible. And so my prayer for you is that you would do it by faith in future grace, which means putting this sentence out there in front of you and believing it. You walk into the conflict saying, God, thank you. I have 
a blood-bought, absolutely certain, inexpressibly happy, totally undeserved future. I can do this. Let's pray. Father, preaching to myself and my longings to love my sons and daughter and my wife and my colleagues better, and I'm praying and preaching for these women. What an enormous influence they will have, especially if they experience this kind of faith in future grace. Work it, I pray, and bless, bless them tonight and through the rest of the day tomorrow, I pray in Jesus' name.